about the practice that we just did. All right. Everybody's home, right? Come home. Was it okay? All right. Yeah? What did you say at the very end? Home? I don't remember, but it, it's on the tape. Okay. <laughs> or these days, it's, it's digital. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, over there. One sec, one sec. Yeah, great, good. I'm just a little curious. You said that um, you were saying something, and then you said, I do believe in magic. All right. I just want to, if you... Could talk a little bit more about that. Super short version, because, you know, a lot of, huge topic. I ducked philosophy classes in college because I wanted to protect my GPA. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> later in life, I've uh, <laughs> come to it. The really super short version for me just to offer is a kind of framework that I use as a way to think about this stuff. And um, I think this framework is appropriate when we're talking about very thorny and profound, even sacred, questions of what is the nature of consciousness, what are the conditions for consciousness to occur, what is the self, is there an eternal soul? We're into some deep stuff. And for me as a framework, which will help clarify what I'm doing here and where I'm sitting, I think first in terms of the natural frame. It's a term from science. So the natural frame includes physical stuff, including energy, E equals MC squared, light, radio waves, heat, and so forth. Okay, that's the natural frame. Uh, The natural frame includes living organisms of various kinds, different scales, little viruses all the way up to blue whales, so forth, giant sequoia trees. And the natural frame includes information. The natural frame includes meanings, instructions, signals, uh, software, if you will. It sounds fancy, but if you think about it, in the natural frame, the meaning of the squiggles on the screen here, in the natural frame uh, is uh, knowledge handed down, including in non-human animals. So we have these two things. As far as we know, inside the natural frame, information must be represented in some fashion by something physical. So we have immaterial information represented by some kind of material substrate, including in the nervous system. So we have the information of the signals moving around in the nervous system, helping our sensory systems coordinate with our motor systems and so forth. The learning how to ride a bike or put mashed potatoes in the mouth instead of the hair, if it's a two-year-old kid, uh, or the information altogether of, let's say, a deep insight and understanding of your own mind. So the two together. In some way that remains mysterious, natural matter, meat, brain, interacting in some ways with the information 
flowing through the nervous system. Its fundamental function is to process information, to store information, receive information, communicate information, and regulate information in some way that remains mysterious. The movements of the meat (laughs) and the mind, okay, enable and construct and constrain phenomenology, our experience of the color red, or the cat's experience of the sound of the can of food being opened. All right? No one yet really knows. It's called the hard problem. Exactly how in the world? Uh, phenomenology, uh, the sound of music, the sight of a rose, the feeling of a the eye memory, you know, occurs. But inside at least the natural frame, that is presumed to be uh, largely, if not entirely, the result of entirely natural processes that required no supernatural or transcendental factors for an account. Okay? That's the natural frame. Now, many people assert that that's all there is. A term that could be used would be a dogmatic atheist. That's it. You're born, you live, some things feel good, some some things feel bad, you die, that's it. Okay, I can live with that point of view. I mean, I hear that point of view, I get it. Other people say it's possible that there are things beyond the natural frame. What might they be? For me, it's useful to distinguish between what could be called supernatural matters and transcendental matters. Supernatural matters in my framework, I'm not asserting it, I'm offering it, include things like clairvoyance, precognition, reincarnation, ghosts, discarnate entities, possibly, supernatural processes. And then ultimately, for me, a meaningful distinction is what could be called the transcendental. And um, people have different words for that, you know, in different traditions. People might say God or spirit or the ground, okay? Uh, Brahman, perhaps. Uh, the Buddha very clearly referred to something. He both referred routinely, as best we gather. It is said the Buddha said, but there's a very rich account of what is said, he said, routinely referred to supernatural matters, devas, reincarnation, you know, extrasensory powers developed through cultivation. Okay? He also referred rather obliquely, but repeatedly, to that which is, by definition, outside the frame of conditioned, determined processes. He called it the unconditioned, the deathless, that which is not subject to the arising and passing away of everything inside the natural frame, including the original arising through the Big Bang of the universe altogether. Right? Um, in Buddhism today, some argue, uh, Stephen, some of them are my, my friends and respected teachers, Stephen Batchelor, um, and, uh, and others, they argue that a wholly sufficient uh, path of awakening can engage only the natural frame without reference to anything else. Okay. Others, um, ahem, I think the Buddha himself said that it's true and useful to be aware of super 
natural processes. And in particular, even if you kind of leave that stuff aside, a little too magical for modern taste often. Even if you leave that aside, he was clearly talking about this profound paradox of cultivation inside the natural frame of conditioned processes that arise and pass away and arise dependently. The possibility of practice ultimately inside the natural frame to lead to or gradually embody a an increasing access to that which is unconditioned and an increasing intimation of unconditionality as the ultimate reliable basis for true happiness. Because conditioned processes are by definition unreliable. Or as I myself put it, I do my practice in a lot of ways. I mean, I do it down here on planet Earth. I do it so I'm less of a jerk with my wife and my kids. And I also do it, ultimately, I hope, to clear off the stained glass window of my conditioned, natural mind-brain process so that the transcendental, unconditioned light that's always already there can shine through more brightly. That's how I think of my practice. But I'm not trying to persuade you to think of it that way. So That's what I mean when I say I believe in magic. All right? I see some hands. <laughs> and that said, that's supernatural, transcendental stuff, mainly above my pay grade, down here inside the natural frame, neurons that fire together, wired together. We got a brain that's like Velcro for the bad, Teflon for the good, down here in the body. Let's get to work. Okay. All right. Question, comment. Okay. How about you pick the people right there? Great. My question is Great. not very transcendental. Um, I was just hoping you could go through the what was it, three or four categories that you led us through in the meditation? There was a safety, and then there was there, were, there was other stuff that came okay. along. And I, I wanted to just make a note of the three or four different things sure. that you led us through to go yeah. back. So, you know, a little bit, I'm working backwards inside the frame of the Buddha's drive theory of suffering, the Four Noble Truths, which are utterly psychological, nothing metaphysical, supernatural, or transcendental about them. You know, there is suffering. Yeah, there is. A lot of it, you know. It's not that life is only suffering, but there definitely is some suffering, including subtle suffering of tension, contraction, uneasiness, loneliness, not quite enoughness. Two, suffering arises due to causes. In the Buddha's hypotheses, he says, Uh, A primary cause of suffering is what he calls craving. The root of the word for craving in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, is thirst. The word being tanha. Okay, thirst. Which is, from a neurobiological perspective, a deficit state. Something is missing, something is wrong. That's the basis for the second noble truth of craving, which is the cause, or it's the cause of the craving that is the cause of the suffering, of much suffering. right? And then in the third noble truth, he says it's possible to undo craving, to go into cessation, nirodha in Pali, of craving. And then in the fourth noble truth, there's a path that does that. Okay, so if we're interested, working backwards, reverse engineering happiness, reverse engineering enlightened, enlightenment, 
What in the world is going on in the brain of a Buddha or someone really far along or you or me when it just feels like it's all okay? What's going on? Especially with a brain that's designed to crave. Well, craving is in terms of what? Needs. We crave in terms of needs, which is a deep construct, a deep theme in psychology. Need satisfaction, a deep theme in biology. Animals must fulfill their needs. So, what are our needs? There's a recurring framework. I didn't invent it. Uh, You see it in various forms uh, that, as umbrella terms, locates our needs of any animal, any organism, including us, in category of safety, satisfaction, and connection. That was, that was the framework for the practice of peace, contentment, and love. Right? So that gives us an overarching framework. I think some needs don't fit neatly into that structure. Uh, some are blends. Right? But it's a nice kind of checklist because um, if we don't experience in our core that our needs met, we're going to tip into a drive state. We're supposed to. By design, Mother Nature's design. So helping ourselves experience in the core, when it's authentically true, that we're safe enough, satisfied enough, and connected enough, uh, that helps us settle down, relax, and not crave, and be happy. So safety is achieved through avoiding, avoiding harm, or that which is unpleasant, signaled by that which is unpleasant, uh, Satisfaction is achieved through approaching reward, typically signaled by that which is pleasant. The second of the, I think, four major hedonic tones. The the term that's routinely used in Buddhism is feeling tones. Also, our needs for for connection, rather, are achieved through attaching to others. So we have three great regulatory motivational systems, again in a framework, of avoiding, approaching, and attaching for safety, satisfaction, and connection. It's, like an over, yeah, it's a framework I use. It's a roadmap for practice. Okay? Because it takes us into what would really help. We can work backwards. Ah, my safety need is being challenged, signaled by anxiety, anger, and helplessness. Aha. What are key resources that I could grow in my mind to help myself be safer and feel safer? Or, oh, my need for satisfaction is challenged. I'm experiencing frustration, disappointment, or um, an emptiness in my life or feeling thwarted, including through societal systemic forms of oppression and discrimination and prejudice. Okay, what am I going to do about that? I can grow resources to be more satisfied and feel more satisfied. And then last, you know, what about my need for connection? Signaled by feelings of social emotions like embarrassment or inadequacy or shame or resentment or getting caught up in conflicts with others. Aha! Or, you know, I, you know I'm, I could use more compassion here. Aha! I'm going to grow resources for that need. See what I mean? That's kind of a framework. So that's what I used as my model in my framework. Uh, Okay? It's kind of really, for me, it's very pragmatically useful. Very pragmatically useful. And then, by the way, as a detail, in terms of feeling cared about, you might have heard me riff through five ways to feel cared about kind of quickly. For me, it's like any port in a storm, any low-hanging fruit, even in a life that sucks. The more a person's life sucks, the harder it is, the more important it is to, in a gritty and self-reliant way, grow muscles. 
grow psychological resources inside. This material is least useful for upper middle class yuppies in yoga camp. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's actually most useful for those people who are most distressed, disadvantaged, dysfunctional. Because that's where we most need to grow resources from the inside out because that's where the cavalry is least likely to come. Okay, One more person and then we'll keep rolling. I see two more people, you and then you. Okay, great. Boom. So, yeah, uh, you can self-cultivate this path that you've oh, led up. Do you mind pausing for a second? Yes. I didn't tell you the five ways to feel cared about. Oh, sorry. Okay, hold on one sec. So, I, for me, it's a little framework. See for yourself. One, to be included. That's a pretty low bar, right? Included in any way, shape, or form. Sense of belonging, sense of being part of a group, joined with others in solidarity, a team at work. You're a fan of the Golden State Warriors like I am. We're together here. All right, included. Second, a sense of being seen or empathized with or understood, or at least they're trying to, even if it's imperfect. Third way to feel cared about, which is a critically important supply to grow or muscle to grow inside oneself, to feel appreciated, valued, respected, uh, on the receiving end of gratitude from others, let's say. Wanted, chosen, okay, pursued. Fourth way to feel cared about is just to feel liked, uh, friendliness coming at us, uh, fondness coming at us, um, affection coming at us, friendliness coming at us, to feel liked, and then last, to feel loved. Right? Kind of moving up the, you know, the stairs there, the ladder. Okay? Okay? Um, included, appreciated, oh, included, seen. Appreciated, liked, loved. There we are. And again, you know, these are umbrella terms. But and the point for me is pragmatic. It's to look for opportunities. Even when, for people to say, nobody loves me. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. But, you know, when you goof around a little with the guy at the place where you get your coffee, and there's a little friendly banner back and forth, on the zero to ten in intimacy scale, it's a one or a point four, but it's still real. If you feel connected with your pet or animal companion, you know, it's real. Uh, if you goof around with buddies or whatever, what have you, doing whatever, that's real. Anyway, so I'm looking for those opportunities. Okay, moving along here, all right? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So uh, you can self-cultivate coming home, uh, but also in the presence of certain people, you just spontaneously are home. And that's also the basis of, uh, of transmitting enlightened uh, states of mind. So I would love to hear a little bit about the neurobiological base or model of transmission. Yeah. I don't think it's... That's a great question. People talk about it. I don't think it's really well understood. I think part of it has to do with just empathy. Right? Think about it. And there are three major aspects of empathy in terms of our neurology. One is we empathize with the actions of others, including body language, facial expressions, you know, little movements of muscles around the eyes. That empathic attunement to the actions of others is really aided by what are called mirroring systems in the brain, so-called mirror neurons in part. Second major aspect of empathy is attunement to the emotional states of others. That's aided a lot by a part of the brain called the insula. 
And the third form of empathy is uh, where we kind of attune to, broadly defined, the thoughts of others, their intentions, their personality patterns, where they are in the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram, their horoscope sign, something, you know. Um, and we, we kind of figure them out in that way. All three are important. I think mirror neurons have been over, you know, something reduced to, empathy is reduced to mirror neurons. It's bigger than that. That said, so we, we are, when we're with people whose mind stream or state of mind, including our grandmother, so chill, you know, or that special teacher we had, or the mind of a horse, you know, we're just drawn into their mind stream, let alone a great teacher. Um, I'll tell you a really fast story about Thich Nhat Hanh. Okay, Thich Nhat Hanh for me, uh, Vietnamese great teacher. He was here about 15 years ago before Spirit Rock was really built out. Several thousand people were here. I was kind of new to Buddhism, and I was checking him out and kind of, and I didn't get it. He was uh, just sort of soft voice, hard to hear. Be nice, yeah, be awake, come home, be like a flower. I'm like, I'm a science guy. What up? You know what I mean? And then, and then though, and then, we had a lunch break. Okay? So we just, you know, we all go off to have lunch. And I had my little sack lunch with me, you know, and I, I went under some trees or something. And I literally remember peeling an orange. And I started peeling the orange. And it was psychedelic. And I know what that's like. You know, so orange, the colors, the taste, amazing. And I thought, my God, the guy has sucked me into his mind stream. <laughs> He's inducted me into his state of being. And I was, you know, I'm pretty hard-headed. I'm not that aware of supernatural stuff, as it were, like woo-woo stuff. I'm kind of middle sensitivity, if you will. And so my point is, yes, that happens. So I think a lot of that's through empathic processes that are inside the natural frame. Some may be accounted for by processes we don't yet understand that truly are inside the natural frame. And beyond that, who knows, there might be supernatural stuff as well. And this is an example here as well for me, how this framework I use is for me a way to be inclusive with not, without losing touch with what is primarily, if not entirely, a natural process. Okay. And I think we can help ourselves by putting ourselves in proximity, choosing good company, choosing good community, uh, reading things that just draw us right in. I'm reading uh, Suzuki Roshi's wonderful book, Not Always So, and whew, that guy had serious game, you know. Our son did a meditation retreat for about a, you know, two days a weekend at a monastery when he was about 16. He was a sports guy. He came home and he said, Dad, those Ajans have game. <laughs> Ajans being the monks and, and the nuns up there anyway. Okay, moving right along. So choose where we rest our minds, you know, rather than put ourselves around people we feel contracted around and less than ourselves. We walk away, they're, they're smiling at us, but we feel small and belittled when we leave them. Aha. On the other hand, they're people, even if they're kind of gruff and scruffy. I love my buddies from New York, you know, even though I grew up in California. But man, you feel better around them. You know, so judge that too. Okay. One more person. I'm moving along. Right there. Art. Um, oh. <laughs> Are all these frameworks that you have in the Buddhist brain? The framework I said right there, I don't think I've put anywhere. 
uh, except I've talked about it. You know, the natural, the supernatural, right. the transcendental is just a way of locating things and thinking about where causes come from. You know, uh, it's not in Buddhist brain, but I did in Buddhist brain in this paragraph that probably got more attention than any paragraph it was where I bow to the transcendental and then focus on the natural. And okay. I've gotten criticized for that paragraph from both sides. Okay, the, the, the question that I have is um, a lot of times you read different writers saying things like within us is an essence. Okay. The essence is that we're aware, that we have the capacity for yeah. awareness, compassion, and loving kindness. That's our essence. How does that fit into your... Well, for me, a key question is, how do we think about that essence? Right? Do we think of that essence as entirely a natural phenomenon? Perhaps still somewhat mysterious, like dark energy and dark matter, 96% of reality is still deeply mysterious. So I think humility is called for. But, um, or do we think of that essence and as in some way, shape, or form being involved with something outside the natural frame? Right? So that's it. See, for me, that's where it's useful. How do we think about it? Myself, I don't need to have a final answer. Um, I'm guided by people who, for me, are profoundly wise, alive today, or mainly, you know, who've um, lived throughout history, who say there's more than just the meat. That said, I'm not here to argue that point or assert it, and I think there's plenty of work to do with the meat alone, the meat and the mind alone, you know. Uh, And then the key question is, and I think the Buddha was very clear on this himself, he said, you know, it's interesting, but don't get lost in a thicket of views about that. Whether you're a college sophomore stoned and talking about this stuff at three in the morning with your friends, been there, done that, or, you know, you're getting argumentative in chat rooms on Buddhist websites. Uh, At the end of the day, what's useful? I think that. And I do think that, that said, even if what we're tuning into is outside the natural frame, divine, soul, sparks, something, even if the experience of it occurs inside as a natural process and the experience of that which is outside the frame can be learned, can be internalized, can be developed um, and increasingly given over to as that which inside the natural frame is living us more and more. That river or current which is more and more carrying us along. That is possible inside the natural frame. So let's do that. Okay? Great. You all okay? Good. All right. I'm going to move, keep moving us along. So I want to talk about, eh, no big deal, self. What is this thing? Self. Right? People, like many of the trickiest words, it has only one syllable, you know, self. What do we mean? So, classically, uh, I want to distinguish between three things. And I'm going to kind of move through some material here. I've done a lot of rock climbing. Uh, there are certain situations like on slippery slabs where if you don't keep progressing up, you start sliding down. I'm getting a battery warning for the iPad here, rather, you know, something like that. Um, And we can work it if this thing goes out. So, first we have person. I think persons exist. I think I'm a person, I think you're a person, a particular body-mind, 
that's unique that has continuity over time, which is associated with, as I said, body and mind together. All right? I think that's true. I think persons have moral duties, responsibilities, and persons have moral rights and deserve good care. Okay? Justice can be served to or for persons. All right. Self. The word self is used often to describe persons, and then sometimes even in the same sentence, if not paragraph or page, is used to describe some sort of presumed entity inside that who, rather, is unified, just one, enduring, it's the same over time, and um, kind of causeless. It's just there, regardless of, it doesn't arise dependently. That's the notion of self, right? The self that is, thank you, thank you, the apparent owner of experiences and the apparent agent of actions. The self we presume in other people when we say, do you love me? And the self that is the me that is a character often in our internal mini-movies when we reflect upon the past or imagine different futures. Okay? So the question is, what is the status of that presumed entity? Does it exist? And second, uh, what um, is our relationship to it and how might we have a beneficial and skillful relationship to that uh, presumed entity inside oneself and inside other people? And then we have awareness, which I use inside the natural frame. I think squirrels are aware. I think the goldfish in the pond in my backyard are aware when I walk near them and they come up because they're looking for some food. Um, you know, I think they're aware and so forth. Uh, animals go through states of sleep and wakefulness, even fruit flies. Uh, so uh, awareness is simply still not entirely understood, a kind of field that represents information, including in the form of sensations, sounds, sights, memories, dreams, hopes, and sorrows, passing through that field. And often people conflate or equate awareness to self when in fact self and the self-process, or the apparent self-process, or self as an apparent entity that is referred to, that's just content moving through the field of awareness. So for the sake of our discussion here, I'm making these three distinctions. Person, self, awareness. And I'm making them because as I've explored this material and tried to read about it and look into my own experience about it and you know, get wiser about it myself, myself um, that uh, I've found that this kind of clarity, definitional clarity, is useful. So this will be the map that I'm going to use when I use these words. Okay? Okay, great. So, as I said... The conventional notion of the self is, has these four constituting attributes. All right? It is unified. There's just one self. Okay? Second, it is stable. It is unchanging. Right? It has continuity over time. I'm the same self today that I was 10 years ago or 50 plus years ago. Third, it is independent. In other words, it, uh, you know, whatever's going on, it's not a fa- it doesn't arise based on causes. It doesn't arise dependently. It doesn't depend 
on anything for its appearance. Okay? And then last, it is who we are, identity. We are the self. Okay? That's who we are. So that's, that's the, I think that's my, you know, amateur summary of a lot of Western philosophy and psychology about the self. Okay? The question is, is any of this true? Actually. The Eastern traditions mount a sustained critique. The Buddha mounted a sustained critique at two levels about presumed self, both the level of psychology he mounted a sustained critique of the presumption of this kind of of the existence of this kind of self and the nature of this kind of self and he also mounted a sustained critique at against the notion of an eternal soul the atman that was prevalent in the hindu if that that word would not be used then but I'll use it now traditions of his time whether or not there is an eternal soul way above my pay grade I personally have had different kinds of intimations of that. I'm going to focus here on the psychological level of the self and draw upon the Buddhist critique informed by modern neuroscience of that presumed entity. Okay? So now I'd like to segue into a practice. So this is the conventional, these are the constituting attributes of a presumed self. Let's explore whether this is actually true in your experience. And then we'll come back and talk about it, and then I'll go into whether this is actually true in the way the brain works. Because inside the natural frame, self must be a natural process. Must be represented in various ways by conditioned, constrained, and constructed by underlying gushy neurochemical things, right? Is that really, though, how the brain works? We'll see. Okay? All right. So now we're about to go into a practice, and I'm going to invite you to be aware of what happens when you move back and forth between what could be said to be a strong sense of self or presumption of self and a weak or non-existent sense of self or presumption of self. Okay? And we're going to go back and forth. I'm going to start with just kind of being aware of you know, your own experience. Then if you like, I'll invite you to start acting and moving and eventually standing and eventually moving around the room and eventually interacting with other people. And like any practice, feel free to go your own way. Do what's useful for you, including just sitting in your chair the whole time. And then we'll do it in silence, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Okay? Uh, the, this material can get way intellectual, way philosophical. I think that's kind of briefly useful place to start as sort of a roadmap, and then we bring it down to what's the land itself of our own experience. Okay, so here we go. Ready? So when I say you, as the Buddha routinely did, I'm referring to you as persons. Okay? When I say I, I'm referring to this person over here with the Rick name tag that you cannot see. All right. Okay? So, 
here we are. There is sitting in a chair or sitting on the floor or on standing or lying down, right? So, what happens when you explore the difference in the experience of being aware of breathing There are the sensations of breathing. Seeing what it's like to orient to those sensations or relate to them. Languaged or non-verbally understood as there is breathing. Inhaling, there is exhaling, there is rising, there is falling. There are sensations here, there. This body is breathing. And see what happens when there's a shift to I am breathing. Happens experientially. There's an adoption of I am breathing or I am making my body breathe. can do a lot of little experiments here. And you're seeing for yourself through an inquiry process directly. Huh. Happens experientially, moving back and forth between the two. So now, sounds. There are sounds. System, my voice, people nearby, your stomach gurgling. There is hearing. So orienting to hearing in this way. Note the hearing with a word like hearing, coughing, or even let go of language. Just be aware that there is in fact hearing. There are in fact sounds.
and try on, shift to what it's like, I am hearing. I hear that coughing. I hear that voice. What's that like? Try another one now with seeing. Eyes closed or open, either way. Beginning with, there are sights, if only the little sparkles or patterns behind the eyelids or with eyes open. Color, there is shape. There are socks. That's like. Then seeing what it's like seeing what it's like to shift to I am seeing. I saw that window. I see this water bottle. What's that like? Now we'll try another one. This one's around movement. Okay. So, um, moving as appropriate in your chair or wherever, your toes or your fingers or, you know, shifting a little. Playing around with, ah, there is moving. There is choosing. These fingers are moving. Shoulders are rising. What's that like? There is shifting in the chair for comfort. 
there is blinking. And engaging the same movements, same movements. Shift to and see what it's like to relate to them as, I am moving my fingers. I am lifting my foot. What's that like? Okay, now in a moment, if you want to, we're going to come to standing. So as that happens, as standing occurs, see what it's like to relate to it as, oh, there is standing, this body is standing, there is choosing to stand. And then uh, let's start there. So in your own way, in your own time, you might play with it. Oh, there is shifting the weight. There is planting the feet. There is standing. Might even move around a little bit side to side. You know, there is movement. Bouncing a little, maybe. Then, you know how it works. And you can go back and forth at your own rate if you like. It's really interesting. I am standing. What's that like? I decided to stand up. What's that like? this mindful exploration and kind of inquiry in real time it can be useful too to move back and forth kind of quickly between these two ways of relating to experience like what's it like to go oh there is standing I am standing I am standing there is standing just it's interesting And in the laboratory of your own experience, for the next five minutes or so, I invite you to take the body for a walk (laughs) and see how readily and how routinely persons can walk about and manage to not walk into each other 
can maybe go outside for a bit, five minutes total, please come back, uh, bring that body back, uh, and explore what it's like to realize, oh, there need be no I, or there need be very little sense of I, or little activation of I to walk around a room, possibly walk out and get a drink of water and walk back. So explore what it might be like, and, and I may arise. Oh, and do me a favor, don't look at other people, or don't look them in the eye. We'll do that next, all right? Registering bodies, taking the body for a walk with as little sense of eye as possible for the next five minutes. And I'll ring the bell when it's time to come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.